Good morning, Incarnation. So this morning, we're going to be continuing through our series in the Gospel of John. And our passage that we've read today is probably familiar to a lot of us, if you have a Christian, of, uh, if you have a Christian background. And our aim this morning is going to be to explore what Jesus means when he speaks of abiding in him. And to hear the warning for those who choose not to. So where are we in John? Okay, right before this passage, Jesus has been sharing a Passover meal with his disciples. He's washed their feet during that meal. He's given them a new commandment to love each other as he has loved them. And he's once again told them about his impending death. And then at the very end of John 14, Jesus says kind of abruptly, rise, let us go from here. And right after that, we get this metaphor that we see here in John 15. Jesus says that he is the vine, that his father is the vine dresser, that he prunes the branches that are connected to the vine. And we learn that the disciples are the branches that are connected to the vine. But the branches that are not connected to the vine um, are gathered, thrown away, and tossed into the fire. So we're going to explore three themes today that we see in John. We're going to explore the theme of fruit, the theme of fire, and the theme of abiding. Fruit, fire, and the theme of abiding. So first, let's look at the theme of fruit. Um, I want you to turn to page 901 in your pew Bibles to be following along. Before Jesus even mentions abiding, we see right there in verse 2, Jesus is talking about branches bearing fruit. And it becomes clear within the first few verses of this chapter that Jesus expects those who have devoted themselves to him to bear fruit. Now, what is the fruit that Jesus is talking about here? We explored it a little bit with John. But the late Anglican preacher John Stott, another British pastor, um, observed that when Christians talk about bearing fruit, it's often in the context of people coming to faith or spreading the gospel. But he notes that the Bible really doesn't speak about bearing fruit this way. Think about Jesus telling the parable of the four soils. It's grain metaphors and parables that are usually about coming to faith, right? We don't usually say, wow, that woman has the gift of evangelism. Look at all the grain that has come from her ministry. <laughs> or that small group of skeptics has borne a lot of wheat. We don't say that, but we should, right? What is all this fruit about in the Bible? Throughout the Old Testament and the New, fruit is about righteous living. Fruit is about holiness. Fruit is when your heart, your soul, your mind, and body are living in alignment with God's intention. Fruit is what the biblical scholar Rod Whitaker, who we quote a lot, calls the possession of the divine life, with the chief characteristics of that life being the knowledge of God and love. Fruit is what John Stock calls Christ-likeness. Fruit is what we said, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, and self-control. Think about what our psalm today says about fruit. We see a man who does not participate in the deeds of the wicked or the scoffers or the sinners, but he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And what is this righteous man like? A fruit-bearing tree. Throughout the entire Bible, when the heart of God's people are connected to him, they bear the fruit of righteous living. Now, do God's people grow without any assistance? No. They need a vine dresser. They need pruning. Think about the word of the Lord pruning King David through the prophet Nathan when he had an affair with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. At the word of the Lord, King David repents and turns to God. Pruning. You could also think about the trials and difficulties that you face as pruning. Think about the opening of the book of James. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Pruning. I would say pruning is any process, whether it's repentance or trials or spiritual disciplines like fasting, any process that we go through with God the Father that he uses to produce Christ-likeness in us. Pruning is for your joy, church. Look at verse 11. Jesus desires that through abiding and pruning, you would have his joy dwelling in you. Now, you get to be honest with God when the pruning stings. <laughs> when you face those pruning moments, though, after the initial sting, will you seek to abide? Or will it, you excuse yourself into negativity and despair? God the Father loves you enough not to leave you where you are. He loves you enough to prune you. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when he does. But we see in our passage today that there are some branches who don't produce fruit. They face a terrible fate. They face the fire. The idea of branches not producing fruit is a theme throughout the Old Testament as well. But in particular, I think there's a compelling case that John 15 is actually referencing Ezekiel 15. So we're going to look at this theme of fire in John 15 and Ezekiel 15. It's why I chose the Old Testament lesson for today. So in general, so much of what Jesus says is a throwback to the Old Testament, right? It's connected. So when Jesus calls his first disciples to be fishers of men, he's probably referencing Jeremiah 16, 16, when the Lord sends out fishers to bring wayward Israel back so that they can be taught the ways of the Lord. Or when we look at John 2, the wedding at Cana, that's a throwback to Isaiah 25, 
the union of God and his people in the last days, a wedding union. And in John 10, Jesus is referring to himself as the good shepherd. That's a nod to Ezekiel 34. I think this passage, John 15, is a nod to Ezekiel 15. Let's look at it. The, Bible, the biblical scholar Michael Heiser has an excellent podcast. It's kind of a strange name. It's called the Naked Bible Podcast, but that's the only thing weird about it. Um, <laughs> and in this podcast that I was listening to, without getting too much in the weeds, he makes the case that if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been in circulation during the time that the Gospel of John was written, we can see that there's all these linguistic connections between John 15 and Ezekiel 15. We're supposed to read John 15 and think, wow, that sounds really familiar. It sounds like Ezekiel 15. So what's happening in Ezekiel 15? In Ezekiel 15, the Lord's addressing the leadership of Jerusalem through the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is warning the people, hey, if you don't turn around, if you don't devote yourselves to God and turn away from idols, our whole nation is going into exile and our city and our temple will be destroyed. You see, long ago, before the people living in Ezekiel's time, King David yearned for God's heart. After him, shifted their allegiance to pagan gods. Even though there were a few righteous kings, God whole further and further from the Lord. And so now listen to Ezekiel 15, 6 again. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel. So I, have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord. God's people have shifted their allegiance and their devotion away from God into pagan idols. And now here in John, the religious leaders in the time of Jesus are just like the idolatrous leaders in the time of Ezekiel. Except these religious leaders in Jesus' day weren't worshiping pagan gods. They had idolized greed and power and control. Their hearts were far from God. So when the Son of God, Jesus, comes into their midst, they seek to kill him. John 15 is just a continuation of the light of Christ shining on the darkness of Jerusalem's faithless leaders. They can abide in him, the vine, or they can draw life from other sources and face destruction. Now listen again to John 15 in the light, in the light of Ezekiel 15. If you do not remain in me, Jesus says, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. I realize that as Westerners, we're often repulsed whenever Jesus talks about hell. But church, Jesus isn't shy about hell. 
do you shirk like many Westerners do when Jesus talks about hell to the global South, to the Arab world and to the East hell doesn't make them embarrassed like it does for us Westerners. Are we better than everyone else? Do we know parts of the Bible that should be thrown out and that should be left in? What words of Christ we should obey and what words of Christ we should ignore? Or is it the case that in every people and culture, some words of Jesus comfort and some words of Jesus offend? Push yourself through cultural aversions and heed these warnings of Jesus, church. If your allegiance and devotion is to anyone or anything besides Jesus, your end is destruction. I'm not speaking to the Christian who's crying out to God for mercy because they have a habit or an addiction that they just can't seem to get past. Falling, repenting, and returning to God over and over again is different than a whole life pattern of devotion to someone or something else other than Christ. Consider Judas, who had a whole life pattern of devotion to money that took priority over Jesus. He hid his devotion for money for a while, but when he had to decide between Jesus and money, he chose money. Where is your allegiance and devotion? What does your whole life pattern tell you about your devotion? Who or what has the final say in your life? The answer to that question is one of eternal life and death. So we've talked about the fruit. We've talked about the fire. But now I want to spend a little bit of time on the idea of abiding. Here again in chapter 15, Jesus is expressing his desire for an intimate and loving union with his followers. If we think back to just a few weeks ago, we saw in chapter 14 that Jesus was saying to his disciples that he was going to make a house with many rooms added on to his father's house. He was going to prepare a place for them. Jesus was describing an intimate and loving union with his followers using a marriage metaphor. Now again, he's describing an intimate and loving union, but this time he's using a vine and branch metaphor. And you just have to take a step back and say, wow, the God of the universe is communicating to his followers over and over again through different metaphors that he wants to be one with them. You'll see that again in a couple chapters in the high priestly prayer, 1721, when Jesus is interceding for us, for all who believe, he prays that they would be one with him just as he and the father are one. My goodness, let that soak in. Jesus wants to be inextricably connected to you, Jesus in you, you in Jesus. Wow. Now, hold on a sec. That doesn't sound very religious-y. <laughs> it doesn't sound very Christian-y, right? That sounds pretty emotionally intense, right? And for some of us, it can almost feel irreverent to think about the fact that Jesus wants that kind of intimate relationship 
that kind of intimate loving union with us. But we see that kind of language over and over again in the Bible, and especially in John 13 through 17. If you are a Christian, you are Christ's bride. If you are a Christian, you are a branch that is inseparable from the vine of Jesus. If you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to an incredibly intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Now, my guess is that when we hear this call to abide, to this deep and genuine, deep fellowship, it's going to challenge you in one of two ways. We all want to be deeply loved and affirmed, and yet we don't really know how to have deep and loving relationships with our friends, with our spouses, with our family. On one hand, we can face the prospect of intimate relationships by kind of closing ourselves off emotionally, right? We can just say no to that stuff, right? We can die, deny our lo- longings for love and acceptance and affirmation. We become stooges or scrooges, right? <laughs> we, we, we become gro- grumpy or emotionally inept, right? So we can just stuff when it comes to the idea of deep emotional union. Or on the other hand, we can find ourselves becoming inappropriately involved emotionally with others, basing our self-worth on the love and attention that we receive from someone else. We become relational Hoover vacuum cleaners, right? Those, those are often the pitfalls that we fall into, right? Scrooges, stooges, or vacuum cleaners. But over time, our abiding relationship with Jesus recalibrates our ability to have intimate relationships. When the emotionally distant person abides in Jesus, their heart is awakened. Their capacity to give and receive love and have intimate relationships and friendships increases miraculously because they've found true intimacy through abiding in Jesus. And when someone has the tendency to find their self-worth through relationships, human relationships, and they begin to abide in Jesus, they begin to find their self-worth through an intimate union with Christ and not with others. They no longer depend on other people to fill that void of intimacy that only Jesus can fill. When we truly abide in Jesus, our cold hearts are warmed and our needy hearts find the only one who can meet those needs. Our abiding relationship with Jesus is the foundational relationship of our lives. All of the fruits of holiness and righteousness come from it. And if we don't abide, we're chasing destruction and eternal separation. So maybe you're still feeling like, okay, I get it. We're supposed to abide. What do I do? How do I abide? And in closing, I would just say, I'm sorry, there's no quick to-dos for you. (laughs) It would be like a man coming up to me and asking me for some quick tips on how to have a loving union with his wife. I would be like, dude, 
<laughs> marriage union is an entire way of life, right? I can't just give you some quick to-dos. It's doing the dishes when you don't want to. It's listening and being listened to. I see I convicted someone. Um, <laughs> it's making your spouse put your feet up while you change a poopy diaper. It's sexual intimacy and doing laundry together, facing the death of loved ones and knowing their favorite ice cream, right? Abiding in Jesus is also our entire way of life. I can't just give you quick to-dos. What does it look like? It's weekly Eucharist. It's visiting prisoners. It's intimate fellowship with other believers. It's repenting. Giving generously. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your enemies. It's loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ loves you. It's a life of constant prayer. As you watch Jesus weave together the tiniest details of your day out of love for you and for his glory. It's receiving words of correction from your brothers and sisters. It's being pruned and convicted by scripture in the morning before anyone else is awake in the house. It's walking through back surgery and a cancer diagnosis moment by moment with Jesus. Abiding is all of it. Abiding is our life in Christ. Abiding is our joy. Abiding in Jesus, friends, is everything. Amen.